This is Livewire from PRI. Hey, it's Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. We are backstage at the Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon. We have an amazing show ready to go for you. We're going to hear music from Run On Sentence, and we're also going to hear from these two guys, writer Sherman Alexi. Hey, Sherman. Hey, Luke. And also comedian W. Kamau Bell. Hello. And black guy W. Kamau Bell. <laughs> don't forget the black guy part. Now, here's the thing. You don't typically walk into a room and introduce yourself that way, but... This being a public radio event, there is a very high percentage of the Caucasian attendees. When you guys, Sherman, you're Native American, when you guys show up, are you ever stopped? Is there ever a time where the person working the door thinks that you're a scary minority as opposed to the scary minority everyone's there to see? <laughs> look, I'm used to this. This is like hanging out at my in-law's house. It's fine. It's fine. In fact, you know, as I look out there and the audience is about 80% white women and they buy my books, so... Actually, that's my mortgage out there. All right, let's head out there and do a radio show. From the beautiful Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's... Livewire! Yes, it's Livewire Radio with comedian W. Camubel, author Sherman Alexi, and music from Run On Sentence. All that, plus comedy from our troupe, The Velvet Overground, and our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. And now, direct from a week-long engagement at Giggles and Things in San Jose, Luke Burbank! Welcome to Livewire Radio, everybody. My name is Luke Burbank. I am your host. We have an amazing show all ready to go for you. We have a bunch of really, really great guests. We have comedian W. Kamau Bell, who will be here. You might have watched his show on FX, Totally Biased, which was great. It was canceled, which is another example of the man trying to keep W. Kamau Bell down. We'll get into that later. We've also got the incredible writer Sherman Alexi here tonight. And uh, as you know, if you've read Sherman's work, he has written amazing stuff about the Native American experience. Um, He's also writing increasingly about the inevitable process we all go through of aging because he's getting older. I don't know if you guys know this from the They Might Be Giant song, but we're all getting older (laughs) all the time, it turns out. And I've been thinking about this a ton lately because my birthday is coming up and I'm going to be turning 38 years old. I know that that does not sound very old to a lot of you, but I want to point out that due to the abstinence-only policy at my Christian high school, I have a 20-year-old daughter So I am an old 38. A lot of miles on this rig. And things have been happening to me in this week in particular that are making me feel extra old. I was walking on this deck behind my house. I live in Seattle and it had rained a little bit and I realized that I was I had one hand on the house and I was moving about as slowly as a person can because I was terrified of slipping and falling. Like slipping and falling was never a thing I was afraid of before. Now it's like in my top five (laughs) things. It's like sharks, number one, tornado, number two, sharknado, number three, 
and then pretty much slipping and falling. I, uh, I saw a food truck in Seattle. I don't know if this is old person behavior or what, but I saw a food truck. I was very excited because you know how it is here in Portland, too. You got these food trucks everywhere. You go to them a lot. When there's a new one, you're thinking, exciting, there's something new. And I, I went to this new food truck. I was standing in line, and as I got closer to the window, I realized it was from the Union Gospel Mission, and it was giving out lunches to homeless people. <laughs> Which, again, I don't know if that's getting older or I'm just a horrible person. It's probably a sort of a little bit of both. And then this is going out on public radio. You guys are a, a wonderful public radio crowd here at the Aladdin Theater. So I, I'm, trying to be, I'm trying to be delicate. How do I, in a non-gross way, tell you about this last one? It, I saw something this week, okay, and I thought maybe I was dying when I saw it. And then I remembered I had just had a beet salad like two days before. <laughs> so like my, my own mortality is feeling very close to me, is what I'm, I'm trying to tell you. I, um, I was going to my friend's birthday party, speaking of getting older, and I was buying him a card at a gas station because I like to plan ahead. And I saw a card on the little uh, turn, turning thing, and it, uh, it had a picture of a really old Sharpay dog on it, like a really wrinkled old dog. And inside it said, inside of every older person is a younger person trying to figure out what happened. <laughs> and I looked at that ridiculous card in like an Arco, and I thought, that is so true. Because I think that the thing that's hard about getting older and the thing that's hard about the birthdays that are big numbers like 30, 40, 50, is that we go around in our lives, I think, waiting for our real life to start. Like we think, when I get older, I'll know how to navigate these kinds of relationships. I'll know how to deal with people. I'll know how to feel my feelings, right, when I get older. But when you are forced to confront the fact that you actually are that person you're talking about, like right now it's happening even in this room here, and you really need to get your shit together, <laughs> it's, it's sometimes sort of hard for us to think about. So I'm going into my 38th year, and my plan for this, my 38th year, is to try to not get really down on myself when I look in the mirror and I see a kind of middle-aged dude who looks a lot like my grandpa in old pictures. <laughs> And I'm also going to try to kind of remember that getting old is part of this journey, right? We're all on this journey together. I'm trying to remember to stay in this journey as it's happening and not think about myself as an old person who's going to happen someday, but as a person who's really having all these experiences right now. And my other biggie for this year um, is to write myself a post-it note if I ever eat beets again, because that was super terrifying. All right, let's do this, you guys. When Chris Rock sees your one-man show and tells you to move to New York, that's pretty much what you do. And that's what happened to W. Kamau Bell before he and Rock developed Totally Biased, Bell's show that was on FX. 
He's often labeled as a political comedian, but by his own description is really just a black guy with opinions. Please welcome W. Kamau Bell to Livewire. Hey, Portland, how you doing? It's been a while since I've been here. Nothing's changed. Uh, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is just as white as I remember. Uh, that's a weirdly excited response, everybody. In another city, that would be the beginning of a rally. Uh, too soon. She said yes, yes. Uh, so yes, I am a black guy with opinions. Uh, I used to have a television show where I aired those opinions until uh, I don't now. Which is weird, I'm going through this weird thing in my career where I'm trying to figure out what happens next and having some sort of like some angst about that and some insecurity. And then the other day I was uh, in New York and I had to go do an appearance on MSNBC and I was at the 30 Rock building and I was there thinking about my career, how am I gonna get through this? And then off the elevator came this group of tourists and one of the tourists, this, this older white guy recognized me and said, oh my God, oh my God, can I get a picture with you? And I was like, oh, that's good, my career's not as bad. Old, old white guy wants a picture with me. And he takes the picture, and he turns to his wife and goes, well, honey, do you want a picture? And she goes, okay. And he sees it clearly confused. He's like, it's Questlove. <laughs> I feel so sorry for that old white man, because at some point soon, he's going to show a picture to his friends of him and Questlove, and his friends are going to go, oh, my God, Phil, I had no idea you were a racist. <laughs> some of you are going to have to Google the name Questlove later. I feel that right now. <laughs> uh, I am not a racist, I can prove it, my wife is white, uh, which, which, and we have a kid, which means we have a mixed-race kid. Anybody by applause of a mixed-race kid? <laughs> yeah, there you go. So you guys know, the rest of you, hey, get you a mixed-race kid, all right? <laughs> mixed-race kids are every, that's it. Remember how four years ago when your friend, first friend had like an iPhone, you're like, oh my God! That's what the mixed-race kid is right now. The mixed-race kid is the iPhone of 2014. Anytime I walk around my daughter, she's three years old, we walk around hand-in-hand, hand, people see her and go, oh my God, look at her, oh my God! Look at her, she's got your nose, but her skin is different, oh my God! Look at her, look at you, 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 oh my God! Then my wife walks up, oh my God! Look at her! Look at you, look at her, look at her, look at her, look at you, look at her, look at her. Oh my god, this is amazing! That's where the skin came from! Oh my god! This is so adorable, I can't take it. It's just so great, I love it so much. This is disgusting, but this is amazing! This is amazing, I want to eat your face. I want to vote against this, but this is amazing! How can I love this so much and hate this so much? I can't stand it, ah! <laughs> I am starting to realize, though, like probably 56% of the reason I had a kid is so that when I visit my in-laws, I can have a black person to turn to and go, do you believe these white folks? <laughs> That's like 56% of the reason I had a kid, so I could have, I could bring a black, you know what I mean? She should be here now. That's all I'm saying is that... <laughs> That hits you guys like a boomerang. 
Although because my daughter's half black, I'm a little bit afraid. I'll be like, do you believe these white folks? You'd be like, yeah, I believe them. I don't believe you. <laughs> Nana has ice cream. <laughs> and it was weird moving to New York because I moved to New York for the show and I'd never lived in New York before and people were like, oh, you moved to New York, your wife is white, you got a mixed race baby, you got to move to Brooklyn, that's the mixed race capital of New York City. <laughs> so we moved to Brooklyn and it is, it is crazy, like if you go to the park in Brooklyn, it's like a mixed race baby meetup. <laughs> I don't, it's not on Google, I don't know how they do it. We walk outside, my daughter's like, my people are this way. But here's the thing, Brooklyn has this national reputation as being like, Brooklyn, it's all fun and it's all hip and fixie bikes and you can be a professional hacky sack player, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but there's a part of Brooklyn that's still like, Brooklyn, break yourself, <laughs> You know, Biggie would still have opinions about that section of Brooklyn. And we, Biggie, small, I don't have time. Uh, <laughs> I don't have time, I don't have time. So we moved to the part of Brooklyn that wasn't the hip, fixy bike part of Brooklyn, you know what I mean? We moved to the old school Brooklyn and it was sort of weird. To, I gotta be honest, I had mixed feelings to be a black guy moving into a black neighborhood and going, huh, this neighborhood could use a wee bit more gentrification, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> just like a wee bit more gentrification, just like a skosh, like a soup song more gentrification. <laughs> Actually, if we could just gentrify that guy, I would feel much better. Or at least turn him into a Wi-Fi hotspot. That's all I'm asking. Thank you, Portland. That's Kamau Bell right here on Livewire Radio. Excited, excited white people. Yeah. I think they're. I think some are like, did that black guy say soupçon? Oh my God. <laughs> Meet the new Negroes. I heard that you said when you started out and for a fairly long time you were really bad at stand-up and I feel like you've gotten pretty good at it. What changed? <laughs> what changed? Uh, ironically, I started to say what I was really thinking, I think is what happened at some point. I think for a while I was just trying to be like, I hope you guys think this is funny. And, and at some point I think if you're a good comedian, you go, no, I'm deciding this is funny. And if you don't laugh, it's on you. <laughs> So, I mean, I just think I got a little more, I started to let my, uh, you know, black guy with an opinion hood out. Like, I was raised by my mom, too, so, you know, I took over the family business. You, uh, you also Some said... Some people have hardware stores. We had racism! <laughs> yeah, you said that every month was Black History Month in your household growing yeah, up? Yes. We did not wait until February to talk about black people. We, sometimes we talked about black history as late as September. It was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I had one of those black moms where if I moved around to a lot of schools and we moved to a new school and she'd be like, do you teach black history here? And they'd be like, no, like, well, you do on Tuesday. I'll be here with my projector. <laughs> How did that uh, kind of affect you and inform your view of the world, having a mom who had such strong opinions about things and had a projector to help? Yes, the projector is quite key. I don't know. I think it makes me see the world in a more... Uh, critical way that, you know, I mean, I went through that thing in high school where I tried to be like, we're all just part of the human fabric of stuff. I'm an American. I went through that, you know, delusion. And then at some point, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, as the one, two, three, four colored people know, uh, in the you start to go, I think things are a little bit different and I feel like I have to say something if I'm going to be on stage with a microphone. I'm only on stage, like, I was on stage for four minutes. I mean, I could have also talked about, you know, how socks get lost in the dryer, but there's... There's other qualified comedians to do that, so. 
So you uh, had this show that was really awesome on FX called uh, Totally Biased with Kamau Bell. W Kamau Bell. When do we use the W and not use the W? Uh, well, it's my first, my, I was given the name, my first name is my dad's name, and I just, it's, it's, his name is, it's Walter. And that's Wal- my dad's name. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's every, that's like 60% of people's dad's name is Walter. <laughs> and there's no, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, the scathing social political comedian, Walter Bell. It just <laughs> doesn't have the same ring to it. Well, I was... I, I, was, I was actually, uh, I was wondering about that because one of the things that TV shows have to do now is they have to have an internet life. They have to be something that gets watched on multiple screens. And one of the things about your show I thought that was so successful was you guys created segments that I would see all over Facebook. I would see people reposting them and everything. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Why did the show get canceled? I mean, we were on FX once a week, and then they moved us to FXX, a, ne- a network we've all heard of. That's not a real thing, is it? That is a real thing, yeah. We got moved to FXX, and I would hear from people all the time, like, I can't find your channel, I don't know where it is, or this great one, I don't want to pay $30 extra a month to get that channel. I was like, look, Mom, I understand, it's not a big deal. I will email you the links the next day. But yeah, it was just hard for people to find, and if you make things hard to find in the 21st century, people will stop looking for them. If you get another... TV show at some point, are you going to go right back to doing basically the same thing, or did you learn about what not to do? Oh, yeah, you know, I wouldn't do the same thing. That would be really... We're totally biased. Just the show that got canceled back, you know. You got to be like Seth MacFarlane to pull stuff like that off, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Remember that show you hated? That's the guy back? who created Family Guy. These are public radio listeners. Most of their life is telling people they don't have a TV. Yeah. So... I know. There's a lot of extra qualifying we have to do about the respo- basic knowledge. As the response to my Questlove reference proved. Yeah. I was actually shocked to find out you're not Questlove. Oh. That intro I read made no sense now in retrospect. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, what are you going to do the next show you have to make it important and about something, but also stay on the air? I think I want to get to a network that people have. I mean, I feel like if I get to a network that people have and then it gets canceled, I'll be like, well, it's on me, clearly. But, uh, you know, I think I would do a lot of things differently. I, you know, I basically had a year-long internship in television that I got to be, like, I was actually on TV, but I feel like I have, like, an associate's degree in TV production now. <laughs> I would do a lot differently, but I also think I would like to try to get to a place where everybody who wanted it, because the things I do aren't wanted by everybody, but so you have to get them in front of the most people possible so that core audience will be like, I like that. No, I hope we see you again out there because I thought you guys were having, creating really important conversations that aren't happening on TV very often. Yeah, I, I, I definitely believe every show I tried to make sure there was at least one thing in there that I felt like hadn't been on TV before. And then the network was like, let's let none of this be on TV again. So, Well, yeah, that'll but happen. Yeah, yeah. W. Kamau Bell, ladies and gentlemen. That was W. Kamau Bell. This is Livewire Radio. Hey, if you're going to be in the Portland area on March 29th, you got to come see our show. Guests include authors Venda LaVita, also Annabelle Gurwitch will be here, Dwayne Edwards, and music from the band Cumulus. You can find out more information about our show and get tickets at livewireradio.org. Hey, stay with us. we got Sherman Alexi and even more music from Run On Sentence. We will be right back. 
This Livewire podcast is brought to you by Ergo Depot, now featuring the Jarvis sit-stand desk for when you want to hang low or get high. Now, I know that sounds like a drug reference, but it's actually not, because Ergo Depot knows that standing tall means higher energy levels, higher concentration and output. Jarvis has a memory handset that allows you to raise the desk to whatever height you like, and its LED readout always tells you how high you are. Just like your old friend Phil used to do in college. Okay, now that was a drug reference. I'm, I'm sorry, we, we just really miss Phil around here. Find the Jarvis sit-stand desk and more furniture for a healthy workday at ergodepot.com, where we figuratively have your back. Welcome back to Livewire Radio. Based on when you see them, run-on sentence might just be Dustin Hammond on a guitar, or it could be a 12-piece musical extravaganza featuring members of about 10 other bands. With influences from Native American music to punk rock, you really never know what's coming next with this band. They're like the Gary Busey of music, (laughs) but in a good way and, and without the teeth. The teeth. Uh, you can hear them on the soundtrack of the new film, Beneath the Harvest Sky. Please welcome Run On Sentence to Livewire. Watch the morning rolling, paint the hillside gold. Dust it glimmers in the dim. Seems to know I'm getting old Days they pass me by One by one unnoticed The sparkle in my eye Is faded and I'm all
Really well with us, but there's something very important I have to ask you. <gasps> What are your thoughts on Infinite Jest? Oh, um, it's a good book, well reviewed. People seem to like it. <laughs> good. Uh, how about life changing? <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, just tell me, what's your favorite part? Oh, I've actually never read it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, good joke, Sarah. Add infinite jester to your resume. <laughs> Never read it. No, I really haven't read it. Sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry to interrupt, but Sarah, I just saw your TED talk on microfinance. Hey, hey, honey, this is the lady who helped those bakeries in Mongolia become self-sufficient. Oh, oh, I'm sure that would have happened anyway. Uh, we're kind of in the middle of something, lady. Okay, I can't wait for your next humanitarian venture. Uh, uh, Sarah, infinite jest revolutionized literature. It's the inspiration for my haircut, and you have never read it. Well, if it's that important to you, Mason, I'll download the audiobook and listen to it while I'm training for the marathon. No, 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 no. You don't listen to David Foster Wallace while you're wearing spandex and feeling the burn. 
Aren't you Soren Sarah, the greatest female ski jumper of all time? Yeah, I've been known to keep it gnarly. Uh, go gnarl somewhere else, hombre. We're having a very serious discussion here. Well, keep flying, sister. Sorry about that. It's fine. Look, what isn't fine is that you haven't read Infinite Jest. That's, that's kind of a deal breaker for me. Deal breaker? I think you're overreacting. Am I? Uh, I love his other books. I've considered The Lobster. I totally get the footnote uh, okay, thing. Okay, okay. Reading Infinite Jest is what inspired me to become a lawyer. Mason, you work at Ikea. Yes, but I made the commitment to becoming a lawyer ten years ago when I first read Infinite Jest. I just can't be with someone who doesn't understand that. Okay, you think I don't have any issues with you? I mean, you hate The Sopranos, you're a terrible tipper, and you have no depth perception which makes kissing, driving, and virtually every activity impossible. And yet, you're willing to throw away our entire relationship because I haven't read one book? Yeah, the only book that matters. I I'm sorry, ma'am. Did you... Yes, I won the Pulitzer. And you also... Yeah, I figured out how to save those astronauts, yes. But she hasn't read Infinite Jest. Wait, seriously? <laughs> I know, right? You know what? I'm getting him the time machine I just invented, and I am never, ever dating you. That was Laura Faye Smith, Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and Courtney Hameister. All right, you're listening to Live Wire, brought to you in part by Laughing Planet Cafe, a restaurant that serves locally sourced burritos and also bowls with all the burrito stuff in them because sometimes forks get lonely. <laughs> Laughing Planet, so good, so close. More information can be found at laughingplanetcafe.com. This is Live Wire Radio coming to you from Portland, Oregon. I am your host, Luke Burbank, and this is a little segment where we answer your most pressing questions. We call it Dear Livewire. All right, we get all kinds of questions from our audience each show, and since we only know stuff about actor Ted Danson and blacksmithery, we often have to turn to the experts. And tonight's question comes from listener Grant L. He says, Luke is on the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me panel sometimes. Now that both Luke and Peter Sagal have live public radio shows, do they sometimes give each other advice? And if so, what is it? Uh, well, we turn to the only person who can really answer this question, and that is Mr. Peter Segel from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, who's on the line. Hey, Luke. How are you guys? Hello, Portland. Peter, welcome to the show. I, um, I can't tell you how intoxicating the power is for me to be the host and you to be the, her the person here to crack wise. I know, and I can't tell you how intoxicated your audience probably is, if I remember correctly. <laughs> oh, you've, you've been to a live wire taping before. I have. I was there a few years ago, and I believe that the key to public radio success is what you guys pioneered, a six-drink minimum. <laughs> um, aside from rampant alcohol abuse... What do, you think the, what do you think the key to uh, the success of Wait, Wait is? Because it is just, it's a juggernaut. It, the, it's sold out every single week. You guys travel around the country. What, what is the sort of special sauce of what you guys are doing on Wait, Wait? 
I think it is manipulating and leveraging uh, the low expectations people have for humor on public radio. Because, let's face it, you know, if, if I was doing my grade B stuff, you know, on a serious media company, uh, probably I get laughed out of the room. But fortunately, I work for NPR, you know, where humor usually by, is, is represented by Robert Siegel's very clever references to something, you know, cutting in Tolstoy. So, you know, it's all about not how good you are, but how bad the people who surround you are. So you're saying that, that, that Livewire has a chance. The bar is very low. I'm saying, I'm saying you don't have to do a lot to really stand out in this wonderful arena of public radio we're in. Hey, um, in the news department related to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it was recently announced that Carl Castle is going to become scorekeeper emeritus on that show. How are people taking it? People are taking it exactly as you would expect it, with a sort of a, a combination of sadness and gratitude. Uh, sadness because he's uh, leaving our show and ending his sort of on-air career after 60 years, ladies and gentlemen, in broadcasting, one way or another. Wow. Uh, but, but, but gratitude because this is the guy who, who calmly whispered the news into your ear when you woke up on the hour. Uh, pretty much for people's entire lives. Uh, he's an amazing guy. I mean, he's exactly as you might imagine he is if you met, uh, you know, when you hear him on the radio, when you meet him in real life. He's that guy. I thought he yeah. was doing an act for the 15 years that I knew him, but that's just actually how he is. No, no, it's funny. I mean, he's, he's one of the people who, if you get him drunk, um, you're dealing with somebody else because he's never been drunk in his life. Uh, I, I will say there's some gratitude also from hotel uh, general managers, because no longer will he trash hotel rooms around this country. Yeah. You get him like a, get him a couple Diet Pepsis, and for, it's like Rolling Stones time in the that hotel room. The man is nuts. The man's, the man's crazy. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the, the groupies of America will be safe. Okay, so final words, Peter. Aside from uh, just getting our listeners completely lubricated, what you've been listening to some Livewire, you've been on Livewire. Any sage advice here? I have. I loved it. I, I think the, the great thing about public radio, uh, the audience in front of you and the audience listening to you, is you can trust they're just as messed up as you are. Because public radio is a place that, that people find uh, the sort of odd, the distracted, the slightly different than the rest of the world, and we all find our way to public radio. So, Luke, I would encourage you and everybody else on Livewire to be just as weird as you want to be, um, to make the jokes about the things that you want to make the jokes about, and trust that there are enough people who have the same anxieties, the same poor upbringing, the same bad parenting that you had, and they will find you and love you for it. It's worked I for me. I think you're right. I think we have an entire theater full of those people. Peter Sagal, thank you very much. Luke, thank you. Halo Portland, I can't wait to get back. Have a, have a cone of uh, salt and straw for me, will you? Okay. That is Peter Sagal. Of course, you can hear him on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on your finer public radio stations. Our right, Dear Livewire is brought to you by New Belgium Brewing. This month, featuring Snapshot, brewed with wheat, and pale malt with an extra step to tart it up a bit, which makes it, hands down, 
the biggest floozy of New Belgium beers. More information at newbelgium.com. Subsequent to Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, Vladimir Putin spoke with German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who described him as being in another world and not in touch with reality. To put rumors concerning his sanity to bed, Mr. Putin has called a press conference, which we now bring you live with our translator, Alexander Limonov. Thank you for coming today. I would like to take time to dispel the untrue rumors that I am no longer in touch with reality. Let me begin by saying that I am completely sane. Uh, just yesterday I met with Venezuelan Minister of Petroleum Rafael Ramirez, and I, l I like that he has balding head like me. When I try to rub his head with my fingers, he smiles because I am clearly a sane man who, who does this out of friendship. And, and because he sees the dragon in my spirit, a mighty shirtless dragon with peppery eyes that the West and NATO would be wise not to insult or shame because jelly and jam, they should be one thing. They should not be two things. Uh, Angela Merkel and her Germans, her German elves that are not really elves but are actually uh, have spirit of goats. She loves them and they all have wings like bats. Like, like bat wings. Burger King as translator, I would just like to say that Mr. Putin is joking around. Russians have very dark and dry sense of humor, uh, like Tolstoy. We, we have very... Oh my, it seems there's a discrepancy in the translation, and Mr. Putin is admonishing that... All right, let's listen. Fine. Uh... Ukraine is now official suburb of Moscow, <laughs> and it will be led by a Burger King. Da. So, Burger King. <sighs> I will not take question because you all look like Rick Moranis in 1990 hit movie My Blue Heaven, and I don't like him in that movie. He was much better in uh, Honey, I Exploded Our Small Child. Thank you. As Andrew Harris, Larfe Smith, and Sean McGrath. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, whose milk is free of RBST because... While recombinant bovine somatropin sounds delicious, <laughs> turns out it might not be that great for you. Whole Foods Market, eat as promised. More information can be found at eataspromised.com. We will be right back.
Welcome back to Livewire. All right. Our next guest is a poet, a short story writer, a filmmaker, a novelist, and performer who the New York Times has called one of the major lyric voices of our time. I call him the eighth best basketball player at our Seattle pickup game. His latest book of short stories is Blasphemy. Please welcome Sherman Alexi to Livewire. Welcome to Livewire, Sherman. Thank you, Luke. It's so weird to be on this big show with the guy I've played basketball with for two decades. Usually you're wearing sports goggles, and if we're lucky, a shirt. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, this is the first time I've seen you in clothes. Yeah. Um, I was talking a little earlier in the show about my experience with getting older, and this is something that we talk about a lot because we have been playing basketball together for a long time. It's a very clear reminder of our aging. How is getting older treating you? You're 47 now? I'm 47. Uh, you know, I'm okay with aging, really, in every venue except playing basketball. Uh, it's, it's, it's a number of things. The fact that I can't walk the next morning. And the thing is, it doesn't matter how long I've played, whether I've played one game for 10 minutes or if I've played for three hours, I can't walk. You know, and then I come down the stairs in the morning, not walking, and my wife's looking at me, my kids are looking at me, the dog is looking at me, and they're all thinking, why do you do this to yourself? And, and I feel like it's some St. Francis Catholic, self-colonizing, self-hating, hot yoga torture thing. Uh, you know, well, I pretend it's some spiritual thing going on, when in fact it's just my sad-ass male ego. Because there is still a moment where you hit a shot, or, you know, in my case, I kind of slap at the ball as it goes out of bounds, that you take home with you, right? And you think, still got it a little. Well, you know, because the thing is, I don't play with guys my age, because uh, that would be really sad. <laughs> It would be a bunch of old guys running up and down the... And the thing is, we play shirts and skins. And I think there should only be two or three guys allowed on the court with man boobs. Yeah. So, you know, I fill that quota for right. my group of people. So, uh, but I play with really... You know, I, there's, there's seven guys who played college ball in our group and, and a couple guys who played pro ball in Europe. So... The thing is, when I score on a guy who played pro ball in Europe, who is six foot five and 230 and could still dunk it at age 35, then I feel like, you know, it's like outriding Philip Roth. Like, <laughs> you know, because I know I've written sentences that are better than Philip Roth. Not the totality of Philip Roth, but there have been moments when I, I write it and I think, I just kicked Philip Roth's ass. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I sometimes feel that way about the guys I play basketball with. And they probably wonder why I call them Philip Roth, but... Yeah. <laughs> In your face, Philip Roth! You might be projecting, Sherman. Uh, that's uh, my Indian name, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was 
I was reading some reviews of your work today, and I was looking through various online conversations that are had about your work, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, but I'm wondering, uh, you write about the Native American experience a lot from your view, from your experience. What do you hear from other Native Americans who, who are in your own family or just who somehow get in touch with you? I mean, does anyone ever feel like, well, that might have been how you saw it, Sherman, but that's not how I saw it. Well, I think a lot of Native Americans are into my work. Well, I know they are. Uh, because, you know, I deal with this sort of realism, the way we actually live our lives. Other Natives, and some non-Natives, think that I write stereotypes because I deal with a lot of social problems, social issues, the alcoholism, the poverty. Uh, and in writing about that, some Indians think I should be writing something more positive, like I should be representing us in a more positive light, uh, as if I was in public relations. Uh, but those arguments always end up being very condescending because what I'm doing is I'm practicing Western civilization literature. You know, nobody ever said, you know, that I wish that Faulkner would cheer up. <laughs> uh, you know, so when natives and non-natives talk about my work in terms of its stereotypes, uh, it's actually a, a really subtle form of racism. How can... Native American people that you know try to move forward in a way that's been different than the history, a history that's been placed on them by this country? The number one thing is we have to stop thinking of ourselves as being reservation Indians. The fact is, is that somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of Native Americans live off the reservation. We are exactly as cosmopolitan as every other group of people. And I think by thinking of ourselves only in terms of the reservation and measuring ourselves only in terms of the reservation, we make ourselves small. We make ourselves static. Uh, and we get so wrapped up in tradition, we forget that those natives we love and admire, Crazy Horse, Geronimo, Sacagawea, they were innovators. So we need to remember that every famous Indian, every Indian we admire, every cultural thing we do, the first dancer, the first singer, was innovative. So we have to start thinking of ourselves as innovative people, kinetic people, again. We're talking to Sherman Alexi. This is Livewire Radio, coming to you from Portland, Oregon. What is your, what's your writing process like now <clears throat> and compared to like when you were just starting out, when you were almost sort of writing for your very life, I guess? Well, I was. I mean, I was writing my way out of poverty. I was writing my way out of uh, uh, racism. I, was, I wrote raging, constantly raging. Every, every moment in my creative process was about anger, uh, about getting revenge on this society that had sought to crush me in so many ways. And, and now I'm, I'm, I'm a dude with extreme privilege. But the thing is, uh, I still have family. I still have uh, relatives. I still have brothers and sisters who deal and struggle with many of the problems that I write about. So even though I individually have a lot of privilege, that doesn't prevent me from looking at the world through the eyes that I grew up with. Uh, I'm never going to stop feeling or being that poor res kid. You know, I had an outhouse until I was seven. That doesn't leave you. Uh, and you see in the world when other folks come out of poverty and get power, they want to turn their back on all of that. You know, they want to turn themselves into some sort of capitalistic saints as if, look at me, I did this, I'm amazing, why can't you do this? And they turn their back on where they come from and they judge the people who didn't make it out. When in fact, 
it's such a complicated, lucky, uh, random thing that has happened to me uh, that you can't base your politics on the successes of one person. You have to start thinking of people in terms of huge groups. Uh, and so, guilt. I pretty much operate by guilt now. <laughs> My younger years, it was rage. Now, it's guilt. You have kids, and your kids have presumably grown up with uh, a really different um, reality in terms of at least their access to resources and the life that they've lived as kids. Um, has that been just a good thing for them, or do you feel like you had a hustle and a grind <laughs> because of how you grew up that they don't really have. Well, I try to be open and honest with them. You know, it's not, you know and I'll, I'll tease them or they'll tease me back, but I get jealous of them. You know, and I'll say I know that exact feeling. Yeah. I, I, you know, I didn't grow up on the res, but my daughter has had a really great experience, and yeah. I have been sitting in hot tubs with her before at like a nice hotel saying, you have no idea how lucky you are to be here right now. Yeah, and then you, end up, you sound like a dad, right? right? Yeah, but, but, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know... I'll, I'll say things to them like, uh, uh, you have no idea how lucky you are to have me, not just as a dad, but the fact that my art exists in this world. I mean, it's this, it's this combination of being, you know, a narcissistic dad and a narcissistic writer. I mean, I end up, in being a parent, I end up getting epically self-involved. You know, I end up being like the sitting bull of ego. And, but uh, uh, the big thing is, is teaching them that with privilege and power comes this responsibility uh, and making sure they don't become spoiled, you know, little jerks. And so they're aware of it. They're constantly aware of it. My younger son and I, you know, are always making up raps, you know, as he comes from the hood, you know, 32nd, you know, Madrona. And uh, <laughs> that's like the Hawthorne of Seattle. Yeah. And. Uh, you know, he'll go, you know, we'll do the Wi-Fi rap. The Wi-Fi's out. The Wi-Fi's out. <laughs> one bar. I got one bar. I got one bar. Wah, 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 one bar. One bar. Wah, wah. So, uh, but we have long discussions about the world, and they have a firm, I mean, my wife and I are extreme liberals, uh, Regardless of our ethnic or cultural identity, politically, we're extreme American liberals. So our kids are crunchy, grun I mean, my younger son's a vegetarian. It's like, I got one in my house now. <laughs> Sherman Alexi, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and that is our show. Our thanks to our guests, W. Kamau Bell, Sherman Alexi, and Run On Sentence. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Laughing Planet Cafe. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is the co-creator and executive producer of Livewire. Courtney Hameister is head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is also a producer and member of our house band, along with Dave Jorgensen and musical director Ralph Huntley. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone, guest writer Caitlin Kunkel, and me. Our show performers are Laura Faye Smith and writer-performers Sean McGrath and Andrew Harris. 
Jonathan Newsom is our technical director. Our recordist is Graham Nystrom. House Sound by Paul O'Brien. Livewire thanks our Northwest radio partners. 101.9 Kink, Progressive Rock Radio in Portland, KUOW in Seattle, and, of course, our hometown host station, KOPB. For more information about the show or how to become a member of Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. PRI Public Radio International.